So today's text uh, in 1 Corinthians chapter 8 is one that I really, as I've been studying this, feel like is very applicable, as I have felt with so much of what we've been teaching lately, but very applicable to our society, very applicable to the world today. And not because we're talking about the sacrificing of meat, but really because of the philosophy that Paul is trying to break down for us. So we'll begin here in 1 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 1. Now, concerning food offered to idols, we know that all of us possess knowledge. This knowledge puffs up, but love builds up. Now, just as a reminder that what Paul is doing in this part of the letter is he's addressing their questions. Okay, and so chapter 7 begins with him answering a question. We get about halfway through. He answers another question. Now he's coming to a third question. So, so they are corresponding with Paul uh, remotely. And one of the questions that they have is, what do we do about eating meat that is sacrificed to idols? And Paul says it's really not about this, this meat that you're eating, but it's really about two things. It's about knowledge and love. And so I think that for today, what I want to do is look at how do we apply knowledge and love into all of the things that we participate in outside of the church, okay? So he uses this term knowledge here, and this word in the Greek is the idea of doctrine or wisdom. So just this is not just like, oh, I know a thing, or I read a thing, or oh, I saw this on the internet, right? This is really... Paul's trying to say, like, there's some understanding here. Like, you genuinely have some understanding of the topic at hand, right? But knowledge inflates our pride. How, how many times do you, do, and I've been guilty of this, have, I, have you interacted with somebody and you realize that you really understand the thing that you're talking about way better than they do, and, and it kind of makes you almost feel like, uh, sometimes you can feel sorry for the person or you, you get frustrated with them. Like, like come on, like, don't you read anything, right? You know, uh, don't, don't, you, don't you go outside of your bubble in any way to find truth? And, and so as you begin to know things, that this, is the, this is the path that that leads to, right? And it's a natural path. And, and Paul's not saying that we shouldn't know things. Paul's just saying like we need to be aware of the fact that knowledge inflates pride, that it can puff us up. It can make us feel like we are better than we are, okay? And so when we talk about this knowledge around meat, for some, eating meat was not problematic because of the knowledge they possessed. And for some, this was problematic because of the knowledge they possessed. And what do I mean by that? Well, for some, the knowledge, the understanding that they had was that this meat was sacrificed to this, this god, this idol. And so, therefore, somehow, if they partook of this sacrificed meat, then they would somehow become defiled themselves. They would be taking some form of evil into their own body, and therefore, they would become defiled. And others said, no, 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 there's, these idols, they are to gods that don't exist. There's no power. There's no authority. And so, it doesn't matter if I eat of the meat. And, and so the question that they're asking is, can we get away with eating the meat? Can we get away with participating in the practice because it gives us some food, right? We can go to the market. Uh, let me just back up a little bit. So the, the, the pagan practice to come in and sacrifice 
whatever the animal was, right? Uh, this would take place in a temple, and there would be many who would be there, and they would then eat of this meat. But typically, you know, you didn't have a way to preserve meat the, uh, the same that we do today. And so whatever was left over was divided up and put into the marketplace and was sold. And so you, you would be walking around, and you might be able to get a good deal on uh, for the price of some of this meat that had been sacrificed to an idol. And so it's a little bit more nuanced than just like, oh yeah, I'm going into the temple for a free meal. It's, it's literally about getting your hands on this meat. And so they're saying, look, if we understand that there's only one true God, then this meat really isn't tainted. It's not bad. We can go and partake of it. And others are going, no, we absolutely cannot because there's some type of like voodoo energy in it and when we partake of it all of a sudden like we've got some type of demon living inside of us i mean does this does this sound a little bit like people in the church today anyway right like like some things become so over spiritualized and some things are so under spiritualized and paul's paul's in this text going like you're not even getting the point uh here like you're asking the wrong question right you're asking the wrong question so is animal sacrifice happening today? And, and I know what you would think, right? You would say, no, animal sacrifice is not happening today. Were it not for local news, right? I kid you not, like we're preparing this text. We're not laying, we're not like planning stuff, right? Like we're just in, in the sense of like, ooh, we're gonna do this because we know there's a breaking news story, right? No, 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 we've had this mapped out for months and months. And in the news this week, we find out that on September 30th, two roosters were sacrificed on the beaches of Tybee, right? And that there's some type of like pagan coven out there that is doing this. It's the third time this year that they've sacrificed animals. And, and, and so, so do people sacrifice animals today? Yes. Now, here's what's mind-blowing. It's legal, right? You would think, oh, man, that's animal cruelty. But no, it's protected. Uh, evidently, one of the police officers was saying that in the 90s, the Supreme Court ruled that it was completely legal for animal sacrifice to take place under the protection of religious freedom. And so uh, the only thing that you can get somebody on is if they leave the animal behind, it's littering. Uh, and this is what I was reading this week in the news, uh, local news at that. So is animal sacrifice a thing today? Yes. Is eating animals that are sacrificed to idols a common practice? No. You're going to find a very difficult time walking into Publix and finding the section where the sacrifice to idols meat is at, right? If you're looking for a deal, all right? That's just not going to be something that happens. But look at what he says here. He says this knowledge, right, whether it's super spiritual or not very spiritual, all of those things puff you up, right? They become the, the anchor that you go, this is my ground. This is where I stand. He says this, but he says, but love builds up. Now, love, this is a powerful word that is greatly abused. The word love is so powerful in Scripture that there is a, there is a constant, full-on assault on this word, right? It, all, all around us, the word love has got to be manipulated and controlled. I, I want us to go, we're going to fast forward, and we'll break this down when we get to 1 Corinthians 13, but I just want to just read this briefly here in verse 4, because Paul's going to spend a lot of time talking about love in the coming chapters. What does he say here? He says, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. 
It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all things, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. So Paul says that knowledge inflates a person, but love, this is where he's going to get to, builds a family, right? So who's he writing to? He's writing to the church. And all of this knowledge is dividing the church, and Paul wants them to come around this idea of love. And love for who? Love for other believers. That's paramount. That is more important than the little pieces of open-handed doctrine that you come up with around something like it's okay to eat the meat, sacrifice to idols, or it's not. Well, I'm going to break this down a little bit better. So verse 2, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. So he's going to talk about knowledge for a moment and try to help us understand exactly how this uh, impacts us. So he uses this, he says, if anyone imagines. So in the Greek, this is the idea of a assuming or to think without facts, right? So um, if, if anyone imagines that they know, so they're presuming, they're coming to a place where it's like, I've got all of the information in front of me and I know that I'm right, okay? So he says, if anyone imagines that he knows something, he does not yet know as he ought to know. Why is that? Because there's one basis, one foundation when it comes to knowledge, and that is this, that if anyone loves God, he is known by God. And so anything that you know, right, it has to be built on this foundation of what is it that you love. So idols cannot instruct you. Right? So what he's saying is, is that like, like you can go and say, well, I know this little G God. I know this idol. But because they do not exist, because they are inanimate, because they do not have any authority, then they do not know you back. Right? Now, what could be behind all of that? Some type of spiritual being? Yeah, it might be knowing you. But the problem is, is you're not aware of what that spiritual entity is. Paul says that we wrestle not with flesh and blood, but against principalities, right? So there is something, there is a war that is taking place in, in, the, in the dimension beyond where we're at right now, right? Uh, Elisha comes out uh, in the morning with a servant. They're surrounded by the enemy and the servant's freaking out. And what, is, what does Elisha say? He says, Lord, open the eyes of his understanding that he may know that those who are with us are greater than those who are against us. And immediately he's able to see chariots of fire surrounding the enemy, right? So in the physical, he saw the enemy, but there was a supernatural reality happening that he was unaware of and the Lord was there to give the victory to them. The idea is that you, these idols themselves are never going to know you back. And the thing that might be responding, the thing that might be speaking, you don't know. But when it comes to loving God, it's a two-way street. When you love God, you are known by Him. And it's unique. It's one of a kind when it comes to the supernatural realm, when it comes to that which is beyond our own understanding. There is only one entity, the creator of all things, that when we love him, he knows us. Everything else that we engage with on a spiritual level, we are engaging with something 
that has a puppet master, and we are unaware of that puppet master. So whatever is speaking, we don't actually know or love or understand, but it is beginning to know us. And so Paul is saying to them, he says that you might imagine that you know these things. You might assume that you know some things, but you need to be really careful because if it doesn't come from God, you could be being deceived. Therefore, as to the eating of food offered to idols, we know that an idol has no real existence right? And that there is no God but one. So idols have no power, they have no authority, they have no autonomy, and no influence. They are wood, stone, metal, whatever they are, they are the thing that is set out there. And you can love them, and you can be passionate about them, and whatever it is that you have created as an idol in your life, but it will never know you. God will know you. And so the foundation of knowledge is understanding only God can know you back. And this is something that Paul is, is, is creating as a foundation for where he's going. So, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, so humanity calls these things God, but they have no power, so we will assign authority to things, right? Uh, uh, we will look at something and, and, and give it some type of spiritual power or authority, but it, it has none, right? And this is where Paul, when he's writing to the church in, in Rome, he says that they have, cre- they, have traded the, they have traded the creator for the creation, right? God created it, and now all of a sudden we're, we're going, yeah, this thing is more important. This thing is where power is. This thing is where influence is. This ide- ideology is the one that's going to fix everything, right? This philosophy, this way of thinking, this is what's going to make everything better. And now historically, that has been, uh, for instance, you know, deifying things around us. So in, in ancient times, they would say that the sun or the moon were gods, right? But the reality is that God created the sun and the moon, and they serve us. The sun serves us. It gives us heat and warmth and helps us to grow food to be able to eat, right? And the moon helps to guide the movement of water across our planet so that we have access to resources like something to drink or the fish of the sea or the ability to be able to move from one mass of land to another. So they serve us. They exist. God created them to serve us, not to lead us. And so the creation exists expressly for the glory of God that through us, God will receive all the glory and the honor as we use the things that he created for us. Yet for us, there is one God, the Father from whom are all things and for whom we exist. And one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. So do not give pagan practices more authority than they deserve, which is none. They deserve no authority, right? If it does not honor the one true God, if it's not called by the one true God, right, then be weary of it and do not give it authority or rule in your life. Don't allow it to have authority. Don't allow it to have a say. Verse 7, however, not all possess this knowledge. This is the reality when we, that, that, that in the church I think we oftentimes forget, okay, is, is we think, well, okay, as Christians, here are the things we hold to be true. 
And we make the assumption that everyone who calls himself Christian believes those same fundamental things. And especially we have to be careful for those that are new Christians. Not only, they may not, they may not hold those things to be true at this moment. They may not even be aware of them. I.e. things like the virgin birth. Jesus being God in the flesh, here to walk out and be what Adam was meant to be, the perfect person. The death, burial, and resurrection of Christ. That the Word of God is God-breathed, that it is for us. And I would say that these things, these closed-handed things, they separate those who are followers of Christ from those who are not. And just because they call themselves followers of Christ does not mean that they are followers of Christ. And so there are those who are set in their ways. They've dug their heels into the sand. They refuse to accept the authority of Scripture in their lives. And, and, and for them, we would look and, and say, well, they, they are a stubborn person who refuses to accept it. But then there are those who are weak in the faith, and they just haven't been discipled. They haven't been mentored. They haven't been led into the deep places they haven't experienced these things. And so because they are weak, they don't have full understanding. And really, very specifically, that's who Paul is talking about here. Because there are those that are brothers and sisters among the church that just have not had anybody to pour into them and show them the goodness of God. So not all possess this knowledge that God is the one true God, that God is the only one that knows us back, right? That there are no... There is no spiritual authority coming from inanimate objects, period. There is a spiritual realm at war manipulating the minds and hearts of people so that they'll believe these things, but they are not true. And he says that not all possess this knowledge, but some, through former association with idols, eat food as really offered to an idol, and their conscience, being weak, is defiled. So some who have now come and said, okay, I believe that Jesus died for my sins. I want to accept the gospel presentation. They have this, this, this problem because they are still believing the old ways. And this is not a unique issue here. If you look at the Egyptians, right, they enslaved the Hebrew people out of fear right? Because they saw the hand of God. They saw blessing on them. They didn't know what it was. So instead of trying to discover what was blessing them, right? What was blessing the Hebrew people, they decided we fear it and we're going to contain it. And so the Hebrews become slaves. They're in bondage. And when they are set free and they are delivered out of Egypt, right? God is trying to present himself and make himself known. He's going to give them these Ten Commandments, these, these, this, these ways, the, the, these ideas on how to live life well. And what are they doing? They're still holding on to that old way of doing things. And they even make an idol at the base of Mount Sinai while God, God's presence is manifest up top. And Moses is there with them. So this is actually happening. They're seeing the thunderstorm from the presence of God manifest sitting up there. And they make an idol and they bring that idol. They make it as unto God. And so the, these old ways, they can get hardwired into us, right? Our belief systems, are, they're a real thing that we bring into the faith that have to be worked through. 
They have to be worked through. Look, this word association, through former association, this, this word can break down in the Greek. It's like your habit, your custom, your practice. And so quite literally, there are some who have knowledge, right? They've come to know Jesus, but they have all these habits that keep them weak. And he says here, and their conscience being weak is defiled. And, and this word conscience is a persisting notion. They, they constantly perceive that what they're doing is right. Somehow God's going to be okay with me bringing these parts into the faith. We're going to make a golden calf, and we're going to worship at its feet, and God's going to be okay with that. That's, that's the Hebrew people at, at the base of Mount Sinai. Here it's like, well, you know, we still have a culture of people that if we really want to win them to the Lord, we've got to figure out how to do life with them. And so we're going to allow them to kind of bring some of their ways into the church, and we'll eventually get to addressing it. And that's, Paul comes out of the gate addressing this, this idea, right? I mean, he comes out of the gate telling them, like, like, you guys cannot be the ones that are justifying sin. And so there are those that are kind of bringing these things in, right? And he says that they are weak. And then love reminds us that habits may be difficult to break, but they can be broken. And so when we are engaged in a relationship with people who are struggling and they just can't seem to keep messing it up, if they keep coming back to the cross, let, love reminds us then that these habits can be broken, that people can find freedom. Verse 8 Food will not commend us to God. We are no worse off if we do not eat and no better off if we do. So food cannot help and it cannot curse. So this food, doesn't, it doesn't change, right? It's, there's, there's no manipulation inside of the meat because it was sacrificed to an idol. And Paul is he's making this really clear. It's like, like just make sure you understand there's no... There's, there's no power in this meat. So that's not the debate. The debate on whether to eat it should not be around, is the, is the meat tainted or is it not, by some spiritual element. That's not what the question should be. He says this, but take care that this right of yours does not somehow become a stumbling block to the weak. So it cannot help, it cannot curse, but eating this meat can confuse the saints. And so the question is not about the knowledge of what, what is, what's going on with this thing. Well, I can partake and it won't really hurt me. The question is, how does it impact other believers? How do the decisions that I'm making impact those who are weak in the faith coming to know Christ? And he says, for this, you are accountable. You're not accountable for eating the meat. Nothing's going to happen to you, right? You might eat a fatty piece and have a heart attack, but, you know, that's on you. He says, but you're accountable. You're accountable for how it impacts other believers. This is, this is why this text is so, I think, relevant for today. Because the decisions that we make and the, the philosophies and ideologies we partner with, we had better be aware of the fact that we are responsible when we walk hand in hand with other groups and other uh, organizations and we participate, that, that we are accountable for how that impacts other believers. He says this, he says, for if anyone sees you who have knowledge 
eating in an idol's temple, will he not be encouraged if his conscience is weak to eat food offered to idols? So you know that there's nothing to this. It's a free meal. I can show up to the temple. I can have a bite to eat and and be on my way. But the person who is not a strong believer, they see you in there. And because they do not have the knowledge that you have, because they do not have the depth of understanding of who God is, they actually participate and they think that they're eating food that is somehow spiritually charged. And now what are they doing? They're merging their faith with the gospel and it's creating a perversion. All because of a decision that you made. So the meat has no power but the participating in the practice, that's what influences or confuses others. And so, by your knowledge, this weak person is destroyed, the brother for whom Christ died. So what does he say? He says this. He says that if you love God, God knows you. Now, if you love God and you're known by God, and you're in relationship with God, and you really begin to understand who God is, then would you not, as a follower of Christ, be consumed by the fact that your actions can influence those whom Christ died for? Would it not matter to you? And what would be the greatest concern for you? Are you more concerned with what is a temporary, maybe emotional or physical fix in society? Or are you more concerned with those brothers and sisters that Christ died for coming to know him and eternally being rescued and saved? You see, this is the question that I constantly come back to. I constantly come back to is, are the things that we're doing as the church, are the, are the groups that we're partnering with and the, and the causes that we're championing online or in person, are they, are they going to lead people to love God that they may be known by Him? And Paul says, this is a really important, important question. In fact, it is the question that you need to be concerned with because your liberty can destroy another. You may be correct in your assumption that partnering with something or walking into something and being a part of something, whether it's marching on the street and being an activist for something or whether it is being online and having a critical opinion. Listen, you may be absolutely correct that that's not going to somehow separate you from God for eternity. It's not going to play any role in your eternal position, but will it play a role in the eternal position of another? And will they see you participating and will they see you engaged in the practice and they themselves then jump wholeheartedly into that group's philosophy, ideology, whatever it is. And when it is anti-God, we have a problem. This is why the scripture tells us not to walk hand in hand with the wicked. Not because when we walk hand in hand with the wicked, all of a sudden God is less 
authoritative and has less power and right in my life. No, 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 no. That's not going to happen. You know what? Uh, I mean, if, if I'm in the same room as somebody who is a full-on pagan, Satan-worshipping, witch, wizard, Jedi, whatever they want to call themselves, right? None of that's going to determine my eternal security, right? It's my relationship with Christ that's going to determine that. But if I act like it's no big thing to hang out with the witch and use the Ouija board to talk to spirits, even though I know it's just all made up and fun, but somebody else is watching and they go, oh, so I can talk to spirits and be a Christian? No, you can't. And I know that it's fake. But because I've partnered with this person, because I'm engaged in the practice, somebody who does not have the depth of knowledge of God, they do not know the Word of God, they begin to participate. And what does it say? There's great accountability. You have now sinned. Watch this, verse 12. Thus, sinning against your brothers and wounding their conscience when it is weak, you sin against Christ. So sin is the issue here, not meat. They're asking about me. Paul says we need to be concerned about our brothers and sisters. And are we sinning against them? Meat doesn't matter. That's not the real question. The question you need to be asking is, how will this impact those people who are my family? Right? I talked last week about the need for us to begin to own and be aware of the fact that being a Christian is its own culture. And it may be counterculture, and it may be hated by others, but there is a call for how we live our lives and how we interact with one another and the things that we do. We are called to be different. We play the long game. We're not trying to win fans in the immediate. We're trying to change people's lives by introducing them to their Savior, their Creator, that they may know Him and walk in eternity with Him. And so sin here is the real issue, the thing that, that you and I have to be concerned with when we are talking about how we're going to engage with a world that is I, I focused on things that are anti-God. And there, are, there are, are, are plenty of opportunities for this. It's not just one organization or group or, you know, ideology. There's plenty of opportunities for us to step out and partner in and go, well, you know, today they're doing a good thing. I'm going to help them. There are plenty of that. The question is, what does it do for the saints? You see, we have to remember that the enemy is the master of the counterfeit. The master of the counterfeit. The enemy from... From the moment that it entered, that, that it made itself or it revealed itself in the garden, right? It had a counterfeit. It had a different way to do things. God had laid out a way for Adam and Eve to live their life. And the enemy had a counterfeit way for them to live their life. And what we find is that every time, and I don't have time today, but every time we identify one of these counterfeits, we find that it's destructive. We find that it is not what's good for us, Right? I mean, look at, look at uh, uh, the, the idea of Jerusalem, right? Jerusalem's a physical city. Babylon was a physical city, right? But we see both of them used beyond their physical 
identifiers and really more about an ideology as Jerusalem being that which is God's city and Babylon being that city of the enemy, right? And if you just run and do a comparison of the two, right, one is constantly about death. One is constantly about destruction, and one is constantly about life and building. One is about hope. One is about despair. We went through the book of Daniel, right, last year. And what do they do? They bring them into uh, uh, Babylon, and they send them through three years of school to re-educate them so that they will believe the way that they need to believe to be in Babylon, All of the men that are brought in, Daniel included, were turned into eunuchs, right? God had made them men. They weren't going to be allowed to express themselves and live their lives as men any longer. There's a counterfeit. It's always at work. And one of the major ways that those counterfeits get, get a root in our lives, and, I, and, and, and I, it is so prevalent today. It's happening so fast. I just remind you that we started this church over 10 years ago, and from day one, we have talked about defining the terms. Why? Because definitions are constantly being changed. Used to, it was something that just kind of happened, right? Like something was bad, it meant it was not good, and then all of a sudden something being bad became really awesome, and I don't even know that anybody even uses the word anymore today, right? When I was a, when I was a, 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 a teenager, I think lit meant that you were uh, drunk, um, and now I think it means that you are high. I don't even, I can't even keep up with the, kind of the, the ebb and flow of some of these words, right? Because I'll hear my kids say some stuff. I'll be like, whoa, hoo, hoo, hoo. you're doing what this weekend, right? Okay, I've even been guilty of preaching from the platform and using words that I thought meant one thing, but to another generation, they meant something else, right? But we live in a society that is so rapidly changing the definitions of words that we need to be concerned because it's not about society just kind of, you know, taking a word and using it. Now, the changing of definitions is so that you can redefine understanding. You can redefine. You know, one philosopher said that if you can't get the laws in a nation to change, redefine the words so that the laws in the nation mean what you want them to mean. Think about it. Let that set in for a moment. That simply by redefining words... I can begin to make any statement or any rule on the book mean what I want it to mean. And then a generation rises up only knowing those new definitions, and so they believe, well, that's what they always had to have meant, and it's not the case. And there was a time where justice was about love and mercy and and, and, and helping others, but today justice is found in the destruction of those who do not champion another's beliefs. Justice is cancel culture. Justice is destroying a person. Justice is not about forgiveness and redemption and and, and making things better. Justice is found and championed by keyboard warriors all over the place who are so excited that they can identify something that somebody has done and then they destroy them for it. And let me tell you something. Destruction is the work of the enemy not the saints. And so if justice for today comes from destroying another person, can I tell you, if you're participating, you're participating in a work of the enemy because God is about redemption. 
God is about restoration. God is about, in fact, he even has a whole plan for restoration in his scripture so that if one of you falls, that there is a, there is a path for them to be restored. That is God's justice. It's not to destroy something, somebody. So the word here that really I want to talk about is this word sin. In the Greek, the word sin means to miss the mark or to error. The sin is being redefined right before our eyes. Modern philosophies like critical theory demand that we repent for things that are not innately sin. You see, the way that sin is being redefined is that it is just being applied to what people don't like about society. What they don't like about the way that a person thinks or talks or where they come from or what they look like. And you're told to repent for these things. The problem is that true repentance of actual sin sets us in a proper posture before the Lord. When I have sinned and I repent, I am in a right standing before God. And a counterfeit sin that I repent for does not draw me closer to God. It doesn't do anything to restore me. It doesn't do anything to help me. And here's the reality is that if I can be distracted by repenting for sins that are not even real, I will not notice and take part in the need for my own restoration for the sins that I am committing. And this is why the Word of God is so critical for us. We need to know the Word of God so that between that and the conviction of the Holy Spirit, we can begin to see the areas in our lives that are sinful. And this is what Paul's doing right here. Paul is reaching out and he's saying, hey, listen, eating this meat, participating in this thing, it's not going to do anything because there's no power there. The power that is that does exist is when you show up And this person who's weak in the faith sees you there and thinks, oh, I'll do both. I'll participate too. And they do it believing that there's power and that God's in this thing and God's okay with this thing. And before you know it, you have an entire cult, a whole new religion that's birthed. A group of people who believe that we can take a little of this and a little of that and then we'll mesh it in and we'll use Scripture. But I'll I'll remind you that the use of Scripture doesn't really mean a whole lot The enemy used Scripture in the garden. The enemy used it in the wilderness with Jesus. The enemy knows the Scripture and manipulates the Scripture. And this is why understanding Scripture is about Genesis to Revelation, not about the verse before and the verse after. That's a great place to start, but it has to fit within the context of the entire narrative. And I just want to say that when you and I show up in solidarity alongside those groups, because for today we align with their mission, maybe today they're doing a thing that we're like, oh, this needs to be done, this needs to be said, this need, that people need to hear this. We run the very real risk of swaying those who are not strong in the faith to fall away from Jesus. And sometimes, I'm not going to lie, it makes me the bad guy. I'm the bad guy who stands up and says, hey, I'm not partnering with them. I'm not participating in this. Sometimes I'll go, yeah, man, we need change in this area, right? But if I show up and participate, right, 
Somebody else who's weak in the faith is going to dig into all the little parts of it and discover that they don't believe in God. They stand against the church. They stand against Christians. And it's going to create confusion in their consciousness, in their understanding. It's going to create a falling away for them. And I will have sinned against who? Against the very Christ that saved me. All because I felt justified to participate. And so Paul's saying, like, like participating, right? That's, man, those things, if you don't believe that that idol or that God or that temple has any real authority, eating the meat's not going to matter. But being engaged in it and others seeing you, it matters. It absolutely matters. And the danger is that you sin against Christ. And this is what's so heavy about this passage. And I think that it's intentional. You know, Paul's writing and he wants them to really feel the weight of this. You sin against Christ. You miss the mark. What does that mean? It means that we've forgotten the calling, the great commission to lead others to Christ. We can fix all of the, the issues in our society today, right? We can go out there and, and we can chase down every little problem that we see and we can fix it. And if people don't know Jesus, they still don't spend eternity with him. They still go to hell. Part of the problem with critical theory whether it's through race or gender or any other form or factor here in our nation today. Part of the problem is that it sets a goal that it wants regardless of truth. And traditional theory, which is critical in nature, meaning that it uses critical reasoning and thinking, traditional theory Traditional theory says the outcome is determined by the facts, not that the outcome determines the facts. And this is why Paul uses this language around truth, right? right? He's using it because tr truth sets us free. And yeah, do you know what? That through critical reasoning, critical actual thinking, we will absolutely be able to come to the conclusion that in society we can tweak this thing and make this change and this was done wrong and now we've got data to support that this doesn't work. And as the church, we can champion that. And we can fight for those that need to be fought for. But we do not ignore reality just so that we can get something to go the way that we want it to because in the end, it's never going to work. And I'm going to tell you, I really believe that this is why so many of these organizations hate Christ. So many of the organizations that are working within our world frame right now, right, to bring change, as they would call it, when you start digging into their about pages and listening to what their, their uh, uh, leadership is saying, there is going to be language in, I would say, almost all of them, if not all of them, that is anti-church, fundamentally against the Christian faith. Do you know what that means? That means that if we encourage people to partner with them, we are encouraging people to have a voice in their life that says Christ is not authoritative or real. 
that's what Paul is getting at here. He says, you've got a, a, a society now that's participating in this temple worship, and they have no power. There's no real authority. Jesus is going to win this battle. The victory is God's. That's decided. But are you going to play a role in leading people to know Jesus? And is that going to be your great passion, or is it going to be something else? Now, let me just flip this a little bit. Can I tell you, you can become so frustrated with all these philosophies and theories that you spend all of your time fighting them and not leading people to Jesus, and that you can create an entire different form of idolatry, that you can become so consumed with standing against that enemy that you never once tell anybody about Jesus. And then when that weak Christian that doesn't really know the Lord very well sees you, and they think, oh, well, so all I've got to do is stand against this, and that's what's going to make it all right, and they don't know Christ, then you have sinned, and the accountability sits on your shoulders. What am I getting at? I'm getting at the fact that we are called to be light in the darkness. We are called to be about Jesus. That, that we are called to be sharing the gospel in all that we do. And he ends with this, Therefore, if food makes my brother stumble, I will never eat meat lest I make my brother stumble. Whatever it is, if it's going to cause those who are believers around me to fall away or to fall into sin, I'm not going to participate. And whether that is having a drink or marching in a protest. If it's going to cause my brother, my sister, to fall into sin, I'm going to draw a line in the sand and say, I'm not doing it. Why? Because as a believer, the number one standard is that I'm living the life that leads others to Christ. Let's stand to our feet. You see, nothing is worth causing believers to lose the faith. There's nothing that justifies that. There's nothing that you can participate in that you could go, wow, we made so much change here, but it cost one person not to know Jesus that somehow that value pays out. It's not going to work. And those beliefs we hold closed-handed, they define the faith. These are the things we have to come in and go, I believe the word of God. I'm a follower of Christ. So I'm going to do it the way he says because I believe it's the best way. And that's my invitation to you today. Maybe, maybe you're in here and you're like, you know what? Uh, I have definitely in my life participated in, uh, in things that did not honor God publicly. And they did not honor my testimony and, you know, I want to make sure that moving forward, I don't engage in that. Then my invitation today is just to simply invite you to just pray and talk to God about it and just go, God, I'm aware of this. I'm, I'm going to be more diligent to make sure that the things that I partner with in my life, that they lead people to you, not that they justify people walking away. Because that's the important thing for today. So if you're a believer in here, you need to understand that if there are weak believers around you, people that are not solid in the faith, the decisions you're making on a daily basis play a huge role in what draws them in. The way you're living your life it plays a huge role in what draws them in deeper. Let's pray. Father, we love you. 
Uh, Lord, I thank you for your grace that has set on my life in seasons where I have been in sin, when I have been engaged in conversations or part of a part of groups that ultimately do not honor you. They do not shine your light. In, in, honest, in, in all honesty, they've, they, they honestly just stand completely opposed to your word and to your very nature. And I thank you that your grace has been in my life to help me to be able to get through those times identifying uh, a better way to live my life. Father, I pray for this generation today that feels such compassion for those that are hurting. I pray, Father, that there would be an opening of new opportunities for Christians who who really feel deep compassion for those that are hurting and oppressed, that there would be new avenues that open up for them to be able to serve them and love them and advocate for them without having to compromise the faith, without having to partner with the wicked, without having to engage in, in uh, life in a way that dishonors you. Lord, I pray that you would raise up leaders that would start new churches and new missions that, that specifically stay true to the word, calling out on, uh, on, on your name while bringing an impact and change to our society. And Father, I pray against every one of these organizations that has risen up in the, in the, in the last years around us. They, they hate you. They hate the church. Father, I pray that they would come to know you today. I pray that their top leadership would be radically saved, that they would come to the saving knowledge of Christ, that they would be convicted of their sin. Lord, that your Holy Spirit would do a divine and radical work in their lives and that those organizations would be reversed, that they would be transformed by a, a renewing of the way that they think and that, God, you would be honored in all things. Lord, we trust you. We know that you are just and we know that you are at work in our nation. And God, today we accept the call on an individual basis to walk in love, love as you have prescribed love, on an individual basis to be responsible for how we live our lives, that you would be honored and glorified in all. We thank you and praise you in your mighty name. Amen.